You're listening to Dedication Point, a podcast and speaker series produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. I'm Matt Podolsky. Season three of Dedication Point is focused on prey species in the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. This national conservation area was established in part to protect the area's uniquely dense population of raptors, but these raptors couldn't survive without robust populations of prey species. In our first two episodes of this season, we discussed the conservation status of the Paiute ground squirrel and the black-tailed jackrabbit. Episodes three and four focused on reptiles and insects in the NCA. This, our fifth episode of the season, is all about bats. That was a big brown bat, just one of the 14 different bat species that are possible to see in the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm Rita Dixon, the State Wildlife Action Plan Coordinator for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. And I also, as part of that, work with bats among many, many other species. But um, we have a lot of things going on for bat conservation in Idaho right now, and I oversee a fair amount of that. I wonder if we can start here by asking you about how you became interested in studying wildlife. Well, I, from as far back as I can remember, was outside in wild places and I had the benefit of growing up in remote areas in the country and so that introduced me to the natural world and it's been with me ever since. And then I pursued biology as my undergrad and went on to do my master's and PhD in wildlife. How did you end up in this position? Were you, are you from Idaho? or No, I ended up in Idaho uh, to do graduate work at the University of Idaho, actually on white-headed woodpeckers for both my master's and PhD. And while I was still working on my PhD, Fish and Game created a new position in the Clearwater region to start a non-game program. And I applied and got the job and started a non-game program there and was there for three and a half years before coming to Boise for also a new position, which was when we started our State Wildlife Action Plan. Mm. And I was hired to oversee that. And so I've been in this position ever since. Gotcha. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that position, like what it entails, kind of big picture, what the goals are, mm -hmm. and then how bats fit into that. So. Every state in the country, state and U.S. territory, mm -hmm. has to have a state wildlife action plan if they want to be eligible for funding under the state wildlife grants program. Okay. So that program started about 20 years ago, but our first plan was submitted in October 2005. So part of the qualifications or eligibility to continue receiving annual apportionments through that program is that states are required by Congress to do a review and or revision of their plan at least every 10 years. But the purpose of those plans is to take a look at the species that are of greatest conservation need at a statewide level. 
So it's pretty comprehensive. And we focus on the species that we know have conservation needs, but then about half of the species on our State Wildlife Action Plan species list are species with what we consider greatest information need. Mm -hmm. And that can be everything from um, various types of knowledge uncertainty, from taxonomic uncertainty. There may be species where we're not, it's not clear whether they should be um, part of another species or if they truly are distinct. Or we could have distributional uncertainty. For example, we may not have surveyed for a particular species for over 50 years and we just need to go back and look for them and see if they're there. And then we have other species on that list that have what we call ecological uncertainty, which can be everything from we're not sure if they have problems or we're not sure if they have competitive interactions with other species that may be impacting them or at most basic level we just don't understand their life history or habitat associations and so our new plan has all of those species in and we identify actions that are needed to address their specific conservation needs whether it's just getting better information or it's taking on some particular problem that a species has. And a lot of the plan is pretty high level actions, but also a lot of it is habitat based. Mm -hmm. So what we've tried to do is take an approach of you know looking at a particular species and if their problems are habitat based, then we try to address the habitat needs and with the assumption that if we do something for their habitat, they will be benefited. Mm -hmm. There are other um, examples of other problems that are not habitat-based, for example, wildlife disease. And in the context of this interview here, we're talking about, or conversation with bats, the primary disease issue we have that we are concerned about in Idaho is the, the spread across North America of white-nose syndrome. And so that is one of the issues that's identified in our plan for bats is to, you know, respond to that, surveil for the fungus that causes the disease. And we actually had our first detection of the fungus in October 2021 when we were doing routine sampling where we swab bats and those came back um, last summer in June, uh, we were notified that we had some positive detections of the fungus. So we continue to do surveillance, both passive and active surveillance across the state for the fungus because that's usually what we detect first and it's usually a precursor to the actual disease. But it's important to understand the difference between detecting the fungus compared to confirming the disease because having the fungus on the bats doesn't kill them. Sure. It has to manifest as the actual disease and that's when we start seeing mortality. And so far in Idaho, we not only have had no more positive detections since our first, all of our other um, samples that have been submitted have been negative. 
which is really good news. Not only at the same site where we detected the fungus, but additional sites. And we have no evidence yet for the actual disease in Idaho. But it is a priority for us to, to be continuing to pay attention and take proactive measures. I think there's a lot of folks out there that have no awareness of, of this disease, even though it's already like spread most uh, across enormous sections of North America and like wiped out huge populations of bats. Can you tell us what white-nose syndrome is? White-nose syndrome is a disease in hibernating bats that was introduced into North America from, based on the information we have to date, um, somewhere in Europe, Eurasia, um, that the fungus originated in. And so our bats in North America had never been exposed to it. And suddenly here's this new, this fungus is introduced into a cave in Albany, outside of Albany, New York. Um, presumably, we think that the way it got here was on a caver's clothing or gear that visited this cave. And part of why it's such a problem is, although it's primarily spread from bat to bat, the fungus, the spores can remain in the environment, can attach to your clothing, your shoes, your backpack, whatever, if you're in an underground environment where it is, and then you can potentially move it someplace else. So once it was introduced and discovered, then we started, bats started dying. And in some sites in the Northeast and elsewhere within the endemic zone, it's killed over 90% of these colonies. I mean, or, or a colony has had 90% plus mortality. Some have been completely wiped out. And that's why it is such a big concern because of what it has the potential to do. And the reason that's a problem in particular is because of bats' life history strategy. Bats are long-lived. Many of our bat species live to be 20, 30 plus years. Um, the longest, our longest known longevity record for bats was a European bat over 40 years. So bats are long-lived, but they have low fecundity. So most of our bat species in North America produce one pup per year. Some species like hoary bat silverhairs produce two pups per year, but if they lose those pups, they can't go out and have another pup. They breed in the fall, they give birth the following summer. And so when some event like this emerging wildlife disease happens that causes a massive population decline, it takes years for them to recover. They can't just build their population up. It takes a lot of time. And so the, the way white-nose syndrome impacts them or how it, it, it results in mortality, one of the interesting things about um, this fungus, it's called Pseudogymnoascus destructens. And unlike most fungal pathogens that are primarily superficial, 
this invades that unfurred membranes, like tail membranes, the muzzle, the ears, the wings. Um, it invades at the cellular level, and that is what causes problems. It also results in what we think in disrupting their water balance. So that is like one of the things that's critical in bats surviving, surviving the winter is one, going into it with enough brown adipose fat reserves to sustain them through the winter, but also um, hibernating in environments ha that have stable relative humidity so they don't get dehydrated. Dehydration in bats is a real problem. And so one, it can cause them to become dehydrated. It causes their arousal pattern to change so that they're arousing from hibernation more frequently than they would normally. Um, during hibernation, bats will arouse from time to time, but this causes more frequent arousals. And for a bat to arouse out of hibernation, it's a big energy suck. So it uses up their brown adipose tissue, and then all of a sudden, they're not going to make it, and they die. Um, it also, even for the bats that make it and then leave, the other problem is it causes a lot of necrosis in their wings, it damages their wings, and if it damages them too severely, like they lose parts of their wing membrane, they won't be able to fly, and they won't be able to feed, and then they'll die. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's a big problem. I should tell you that, as a side note, that um, I'm producing a documentary about white-nose syndrome in bats. <laughs> <laughs> Which is part of the reason why, like, I uh, have a particular interest in bats in this topic oh, and bats great. in Idaho. Um, so we're following uh, uh, Dr. Winifred Frick um, from from Bat Conservation mm -hmm. International mm -hmm. and her team that's uh, doing, like, I mean, they're calling it the fat bat study, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, light lures at the entrances to caves mm -hmm. that have already been infected with white nose mm -hmm. to try to see if they can increase fat reserves mm -hmm. um, before bats go in to hibernate and increase, you know, survival rates. I mean, these declines are so catastrophic, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, there seems to me to be, like, a consensus among the vast majority of bat researchers that this is inevitable, right? There's no possible way to stop the spread. Maybe there's ways to slow the spread, but not to stop it. And that it is inevitable white nose will get here to Idaho. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I guess, like, I guess the first question is like, is like, do you agree with that? Like, is are we talking about an inevitability? And and if so. Like, how do you, like, I'm working with these researchers who are, like, trying to find ways to, like, speed up recovery in areas that have already had catastrophic declines. But for this area here, where we haven't seen those catastrophic declines, like, knowing that there's this inevitability, it'll be here, like, I can't even wrap my mind how you would try to prepare for something like that. Well, we are trying <laughs> to prepare for it, and I, I, do, I do think, based on evidence that we've seen elsewhere in the country, mm -hmm. that we probably, it, it probably will 
you know, we probably will see the disease manifest. It's only been, uh, so we, we, our first samples were from October 2021, so we've been negative since. But, you know, it's, it, like Montana was three years out before they saw the disease. But in terms of what we are doing in the meantime, mm -hmm. um, one of the things we're doing right now, and we have been, this, is, this will be the third year, we've been working with a researcher, Dr. Tony Roki from the National USGS National Wildlife Health Center. Mm -hmm. She developed a vaccine okay. against whiteness syndrome. And she, her research is showing some encouraging results of that it can reduce fungal loads. And if the fungal load isn't high enough of the fungus, there's possibility it may not be as impacted if it does get white nose syndrome. Uh, but we've been vaccinating bats with her. And we are going to vaccinate the Swan Falls bats this, this summer. And what we're going to try this year is the past years we vax actually, Dr. Tony and her team have orally vaccinated the bats. They basically pipetted the vaccine into their mouth. So we've had to capture the bats, give them the vaccine orally. Mm -hmm. So what we're going to do at Swan Falls is because that site where the bats roost is easily accessible to us and it's concrete, we're working with Idaho Power who manages the site. But what we're planning to do with this, you know, um, we're, we're actually working with Idaho Power right now to get permission to do this, but we're planning to basically spread what Dr. Roki refers to as a vaccine-laden jelly on the roost surface. I like to call it vaccine goo, but basically spread it across the surface of their roost substrate with the assumption that when they land to roost, they're going to walk across it and bats groom themselves using their little toes and feet. So they put their toes in their mouth and, you know, moisten their toes and then they, they use their little toes as a comb. Right. So they would ingest the vaccine so you're not having to individually vaccinate all the bats. Mm -hmm you're gonna get a lot of coverage, presumably. So we are planning to try that this summer. Um, and so far, you know, we're really hoping that it's going to be protective for our bats. And given the number of bats we have in Idaho, you know, we're not gonna vaccinate every bat. Right. There's no way. Right. But we have to start someplace. Mm -hmm. And then uh, some of the other Things. One of the things we're planning to do at Mini Tonka Cave in southeast Idaho is build a, what we call a bat shed in case that cave becomes, you know, bats start getting white nose to give them an alternate safe white nose free or fungus free site they can go to. 
and that has shown some promise in elsewhere where people have done that. Mm -hmm. Other new management options are coming on, UV light, mm -hmm. going into underground sites where bats roost and using UV light to basically kill any fungus that's on the substrate. Mm -hmm. So we're looking into that as well. And we had done, some years back, we had done a structured decision-making workshop with USGS, the Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, others, and some researchers that are experienced in decision analysis to try to help us here in Idaho, at least specifically focused on Minnetonka Cave, which was the one we were most worried about, and that is where we first detected it, because it was pretty high risk because it's a commercial cave. Right. You know, thousands and thousands of people visit that for right. every year. But we went through this, you know, structured process, and some of the things that emerged were vaccination, building the bat shed, the UV light. So um, in terms of management options that would likely be effective. So, and then the National White Nose Syndrome Workshop is coming up in June. Hope to learn more about the latest, you know, options that we can try to do something about. Mm -hmm. But like you said, I mean, there, there are so many things that we can do and there are a lot of things that are not in our control, unfortunately. been doing a lot of things already for bats over the past several years. We will continue to do some of those and then we have an emphasis on some things that we feel we really need to get a better handle on. So to give you an example of some of the things we've been doing already is we have been doing surveillance for white nose syndrome and the fungus for years. We have also been implementing the North American Bat Monitoring Program mm -hmm. for several years now, and we've actually been able to enhance our sampling, including on the NCA. We do have some grid cells for the North American Bat Monitoring Program on the NCA, and we are now working with the Northwest Bat Hub, which is based out of Bend, they now have funding to send a team to Idaho each summer to help us boost the number of grid cells we can get done. So they will be sending a team this summer. Again, this is our third year where they've sent somebody here. So we do grid cells um, internally with our regional diversity biologists. We have some habitat biologists who adopt cells. We have partners we work with, the BLM, Forest Service, Idaho National Laboratory, Fish and Wildlife Service, Idaho Master Naturalists. So we basically have a grid cell, um, number of grid cells across the state where we go out every summer and deploy acoustic detectors. And so what we're trying to do is, one, look at the species composition 
at that site and over time the you know be able to look at trend data for bats mm -hmm. and it's been really encouraging at the you know the data we've gotten because one it's expanded the range known range of some of our bat species in the state that we didn't realize they had a broader range um, and then we're starting to be able to across the the Northwest now, both Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon. There was another program in Oregon that had gone on for years, and from that, with new data, we're starting to be able to see some evidence of a trend for certain species. And that's the kind of information that's really important, not only knowing where they are, but how they're doing. Also within the boundary of the NCA is Swan Falls Power Plant. Mm -hmm. Swan Falls Power Plant downstairs has one of the largest maternity colonies for bats in the state. And it's a Yuma myotis colony. And something new, because you were asking Matt about some of, you know, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. So one, we have the North American, you know, what we call NA bat. Um, we have the PD and white nose surveillance, but we are also trying to get one of our priorities that emerged from this recent process is getting a better understanding of our maternity colonies, bat mm -hmm. maternity colonies in the state. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, motivations for that is that winter data for bats in Idaho at Hibernacula are predominantly Townsend's Biggered Bat and western small-footed myotis. We have some sites like Minnetonka Cave in the southeast part of the state that's the most species diverse hibernaculum in the state that has multiple what we call myotis species, but we don't pick up a lot of those myotis species in the winter. So our best chance of getting good population data on them is to locate summer maternity colonies and get counts mm -hmm. and species composition. Some of them are single species, some of them are mixed species colonies. Predominantly, most of the mixed species colonies are Yuma myotis and little brown okay. myotis. Mm -hmm. And part of why that matters, other than just having a better understanding, is that right now, the US Fish and Wildlife Service is doing a status review on little brown Mm -hmm. Myotis. Mm -hmm. We expect a decision on that in the Fish and Wildlife Service federal fiscal year 2024. So because most of these maternity colonies are either Little Brown or Yuma, both of which are impacted by white nose syndrome elsewhere in the country where it's endemic, we really want to get good baseline data on where those colonies are, what the species are, and how many there are. So if you get those data before white nose comes through, then you've got that nice baseline pre-white nose yes. and post-white nose. That's Birds of Prey NCA Partnership President Steve Alsip, who joined me for this interview. So yes. like now is the time now is definitely to get, time. To get exactly. those data. Yes, that's a, a really important point. And I'll give you an example. In Montana, when they first detected the fungus in a large hibernaculum, they went back uh, to do uh, 
survey the following years, the third year that colony had declined, I think, over 90%. So, you know, these are maternity colonies. However, if white nose establish gets established in Idaho and starts causing mortality, like right now, that colony, the last time we checked it, which was pre-pandemic, because during the pandemic, over concerns about the potential for the SARS-CoV-2 virus to impact bats, we didn't really know because it's a novel pathogen. Sure. We were not doing internal surveys for bats because we did not want people getting in there and potentially exposing them to SARS-CoV-2. So this will be our first year going back there, but our baseline date on that colony in the past has been roughly 2,000 bats. So if all of a sudden we went in and there were like 500 bats, that would be a huge red flag sure. for us. And do you assess that like through visual counts or like as they enter and, and leave or acoustic monitoring? How do you count the bats, I guess? Yeah, so it, I'll say a combination of things, but for the counts, we can't use acoustic data because the acoustic data uh, only tells you the species, the species yeah. because a bat, the same individual, could, could have multiple calls and then you would be overcounting. We've tried a couple of different things at Swan Falls. Um, it depends on the structure in terms of how you do your count. And there are some, there's some new technology trying to improve our, our ability to get good counts. Um, using thermal imagery, for example. We tried that um, one year, but the problem with that particular colony is where they exit. It's, it's right over the river and we couldn't get very close. Oh, interesting. And then when you've got a lot of bats coming out, it's hard to count them. So there's some computer programs and we're just waiting for things to improve to give us better methods. But what we've done at Swan Falls is gone in, taken digital images, you know, from throughout the colony of the clusters, and then tried to do, get the best count we can. But that can be challenging, as you can imagine, because when the bats are packed on each other, you can be looking at, is that a little, is that a muzzle in there? Or, you know, and then there are some tubes in the ceiling and they go up there oh. and there's no way to count them other than you can see a few little faces. So, but in other structures like a barn, for example, or some other building, what we will often do is station somebody at each of the four corners with tally counters, counting the bats coming out of like bat boxes or some exit. What other species of bats live in the NCA in particular? Well, in the NCA, we can potentially detect all 14 bat species that occur oh, wow. in Idaho. Um, just outside of the NCA boundary, we have a site up in the Hawaii's where we have detected all 14 bat species through our NABAT wow. program. So most of the bat species, if not all, in Idaho can be found on the NCA. That's cool. Nice, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. In fact, just here, like here at, at the Fish and Game headquarters, the MK Nature Center, when we've done bat programs there, 
we've detected most of the bat species that occur in the state in one evening just walking around with a detector. Wow. Cool. So, oh, yeah. so that's something people don't, uh, don't really think about because they're not used to seeing bats mm -hmm. and realizing that they're around, but they occur everywhere in the state, mm -hmm. right here in town. And so of those 14 species, um, are, they, are they all hibernating species or do we have some migratory species? We do have some migratory species and that's, um, so of our 14 species, all but two, as far as we know, are resident in Idaho, but they either, basically they have two strategies when there's no food, you know, they either hibernate or migrate. And so most of our bats that are resident do short distance migrations to a hibernaculum where they spend the winter. We have two species, the silver-haired bat and the hoary bat, that migrate out of the state for the winter. Hoary bats are what we call foliage roosters. They literally spend the summers just hanging from a little small limb that they can get their feet around. They even give birth right there, hanging from a limb. And so they leave and go down, as far as we know, probably um, Southern Arizona, Southern California. But recent work with a tagged bat, hoary bat, I think it was tagged in Northern California, and this is just a crazy story of, of what we can learn from marking animals that we couldn't get any other way. This hoary bat, we typically think of animals migrating pretty much north-south. This bat went north, across the country east, and then south, instead of north-south. So. You know, who knows what, where our hoary bats are going to. Uh, with silver-haired bats, one of the interesting things with that species is increasingly we're getting more information about silver-haired bats that suggests not all of them do migrate. Um, in British Columbia, one of my colleagues who's worked on silver-haired bats there, and they stay for the winter. They kind of, they'll go into hibernation, they'll come out, they'll forage, they'll go back in hibernation. Um, we have some records in Idaho, we have one record of a hibernating silver-haired bat in an abandoned mine up in the Clearwater region. So we know that some of them don't leave, and, but we suspect that most of them migrate out of the state for the winter. One of the things we did want to talk about while it's in my brain is, is the habitat potential. Like we know that there's bats um, in some caves in the guard system or in the OCTC and we know that there's bats roosting at the dam but like the canyon itself I'm interested about like the potential habitat and what bats might associate with just the canyon itself. So in the canyon it's really the cliff faces and crevices where the bats can get in and roost. Mm -hmm. And so it's likely that at least some of the bats could even have small maternity colonies there in the cliffs, but species like spotted bat are cliff dwellers, or basically crevice dwelling bats. And that most of our spotted bats are in the southwest part of the state in the river canyons. 
Other species like what we call canyon bat, which used to be called western pipistrelle, um, also a big canyon dwelling bat, but then there are plenty of other species too that will live in the canyon or at least come out and forage over the river. Gotcha. Like yumas and little browns are big on foraging over water. I want to talk about like like threats to bats, potential conservation threats to bats. Mm -hmm. White-nose syndrome is looming over all of that, but like are there any other like conservation concerns that are like relevant to the NCA area or other parts of Idaho that are things that folks should be aware of or things that you're concerned about? Yes, so the two biggest issues, conservation issues for bats in North America are white-nose syndrome and wind energy. Mm. Wind energy because of fatality associated with turbine strikes mm -hmm. at, at wind energy facilities. And the two species that occur in Idaho that are most impacted by wind energy are, hori, are migratory bats, mm. hories and silver -haireds. Um, there ha we do have records of some other species that have um, been killed at wind energy facilities, but it's minimal in comparison to the numbers of horries and silver -haireds. And that's pretty true across most of the country, except in the east, there are some of the myota species that are also um, heavily impacted by wind energy. But so with respect to the NCA, as wind energy continues to build out um, across the country, then I would expect at some point, you know, that's going to be an issue for the NCA potentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are there like steps that can be taken to mitigate those impacts? Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot of research going on right now, and one of the emerging technologies is acoustic deterrence being deployed. So there's a lot of research going on right now to see how effective that is. So basically installing these deterrents that put out an ultrasonic signal that basically gives the message to the bats, you don't want to come here. Right. And there are some other um, methods such as what's called curtailment or basically and not you know, feathering blades or not having it cut in until it gets to a certain speed, wind speed, because bats typically fly at lower wind speeds, which also creates the least wind energy from these turbines and so, but, the problem is trying to work with these companies to implement those and it would be voluntary for them to do that because we have no regulatory authority in Idaho to make a wind energy company do that. So right. it's really just trying to build relationships. Yeah, and if if Little Brown, for example, were to be listed, which we don't know yet, but then then it would be the Fish and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that would have the authority, because okay. like right now, we have no listed bass species in Idaho. So the Idaho Department of Fish and Game has the management authority for for wildlife, and we don't have any regulatory authority over wind energy currently. Uh, and so one of the questions people often ask about bats, you know, why are these bats 
come, you know, getting struck by these turbines when they echolocate. Well, bats don't always echolocate. And bats have, as well as other animals, birds, for example, have lots of mechanisms for migration. You know, sky, um, star, you know, land, landforms, things like that. I mean, I've been doing some bat surveys in the past at abandoned mines where I've had, you know, a trap set up and I've also had a detector and I've caught certain species but I did not pick them up on the detector because they weren't echolocating. Mm. So if they can see, you know, bats have good vision. It's better at low light than humans but they do see and they do use landmarks and other cues during migration. So if it's a night they can, they're just booking it, they don't really need to echolocate. But the other thing is the speed of those turbines. Right. I mean, they could, even if they were echolocating, they could send out a signal and it could be clear, but by the time they get there, whack. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Also, just bats in general are really curious animals. They check out all kinds of stuff. And so it's possible they're just like, what is this? I'm gonna check it out. So there were some other thoughts around why Hori's and Silverheads in particular were getting impacted. And one thought was um, hypothesizing that they, they're migrating in some cases, like if we're talking about the Snake River Plain, this vast expanse of non-treed land and there was a researcher who hypothesized that those wind turbines that are sticking up are like trees and they're going toward the tree. Mm -hmm. I, in my experience with bats in Idaho, especially in sagebrush systems and, and other systems without trees, they will roost anywhere, especially silver-haired bats. We typically think of horries and silver-haired as People, a lot of people call them tree roosting bats because that's a lot, a lot of what they use, especially horries. But during migration, they will land anywhere on your tomato plant in your garden. I've had friends call me and say, oh my gosh, I just found a hoary bat roosting in my sunflowers or my tomatoes and during migration because they're tired. They need to go to sleep. They right. land and they don't really care whether it's their favorite tree or not. What about rabies? Should folks be concerned about this disease and what precautions can people take? Rabies is not a problem for bats in that it's killing them off. Mm -hmm. it's, with, it's in their populations at really low levels, less than 1%. Mm -hmm. So it impacts into some individuals, but it doesn't cause the declines we see from other things. But from a human perspective, it's important that people understand that bats can get rabies. When they get it, they die. Because a lot of people make the assumption that all bats have rabies, which they don't, and that they're just, you know, reservoirs for it, and that's not the case. I mean, the, the reservoir is that some bats get it, once they become infected, they die. But most of our bats are healthy, but we don't want people handling them 
with bare hands because mm -hmm. that's when they get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And then if somebody gets bitten or there's some kind of exposure or it's not clear, that bat has to get euthanized and tested for rabies. And we lose a lot of bats every year. So the last question I can think to ask you since we're doing this interview in the context of bats as potential prey items for birds of prey. Mm -hmm. I had on one of the shoots I went to for this documentary I was telling you about um, in Central California, right outside Sacramento, um, there's, I think there's like a quarter million Mexican free-tailed bats that roost mm -hmm. under the causeway there. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to see a peregrine falcon hunting. Oh yeah. Uh, a huge swarm mm -hmm. of bats there, which was really cool. Um, have you ever had the chance? Yes, yeah. I have. Yeah. Uh, both in Idaho and in Texas. Mm -hmm. I was in Texas at Bracken Cave watching mm -hmm. the emergence mm -hmm. of the Brazilian free-tailed bats, mm -hmm. which some people call Mexican free-tailed bats. And there were peregrines, there were Swainson's hawks, mm -hmm. and they're circling around because it's a predictable event mm -hmm. daily. Mm -hmm. And so they're just there waiting. Snakes are positioned, and they're just waiting for the emergence. Mm -hmm. And all those bats come funneling out, and they just dive in and get them. And so in my experience here in Idaho, because we don't have those enormous colonies of Brazilian free-tailed bats, like we see in Texas or California. Um, but, you know, the Swan Falls colony, those bats are emerging every evening. They're coming out of there, and so that's a predictable food source for any raptors that happen to be around there. I have actually seen great horned owls hunting bats. Oh. And the first time I saw, I also rehabilitate bats, mm -hmm. sick and injured bats in my spare time outside of my job. And I had a silver-haired bat that I was going to release along the Greenbelt, along the Boise River. And I went out and usually I have a spotlight to follow them once I release them to make sure they don't, you know, land on the ground, that I can see that they flew off and are safe. This particular evening, I was at a spot along the green belt where I could park with my headlights on and have a good beam when I release the bats or the bat. And I released that bat, and no sooner that bat took off, here comes a great horned owl in hot pursuit of that bat. And I was mortified. It's like, okay, I just rehabbed this bat and now it's gonna get taken out by a great horned owl. And thankfully, that particular little silver-haired was like a little fighter pilot. It just <laughs> right into the cottonwoods and disappeared. Nice. So that particular great horned owl did not get that bat, but they do get bats. And so, you know, here, you know, we have peregrines, it's possible, but um, it's more with, with hawks like Beauties, Swainson's, others, and peregrines. It's more typical when you have these really large colonies that are predictable.
That was our conversation with Rita Dixon, the State Wildlife Action Plan Coordinator for the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. If you'd like to learn more about Rita Dixon's work, you can find relevant links on the show notes page on our website. Check out birdsofpreyncapartnership.org. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Wild Lens Collective and with support from the Conservation Lands Foundation. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with Steve Olsip. Music for today's episode is by Like a Rocket. Check out our website at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org for a full list of credits. <laughs>